think. Act and prosper. You are now tuned into the Money Level Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Money Level Show where we think, act, and prosper. Today I have a special guest with us. He goes by the name of Doombird. And he is a green chicken. However, this green chicken brings a lot of knowledge to the table about many of the things that are going on geopolitically. Also, a lot of the things going on in the energy sector and many other commodities that really apply to our daily lives. And so we're just going to have a candid conversation with Doomberg. Doomberg, I want to welcome you to the channel. How are you doing today? Daryl, it's been doing great. It's been a couple of weeks in the making and a real pleasure to be here finally and glad that we could find some time to have a chat. Yes, yes, definitely. So um, you've mentioned a lot of times that you're mostly known on Substack and then you're also on Twitter. Uh, what, what was kind of that process like getting that getting that going and everything? I mean, because a lot of people may look at starting a YouTube channel or starting a Substack and think that like, oh, it's impossible or how, how am I going to actually be able to do this? What, what was kind of some of the thoughts going through your head? Like, how, how did you compile all that together? Yeah, so we... Um we have some background in the space uh, prior to starting Doomberg ourselves. We, um, we actually run a bespoke consulting firm and our, our consulting firm has a couple of, um, couple of product offerings. But one of the things we, we did as a consequence of COVID is we really started to study the content creator space and started helping some content creators grow their existing business using some of the fundamental business operating principles that we have on our firm in the, in the form of, you know, decades of experience in, in business. And then um, we, we achieved some pretty good success with that and helped some people grow pretty quickly. And then we decided, hey, why, why don't we take all of those lessons that we've learned uh, by helping others and, and leverage their support and start a completely new product. And, um, you know, the green chicken is our brand icon, but um, we started our Twitter account and our Substack account um, on the same day. And we have been systematically growing both using the sort of key principles that we were teaching others to do. And, you know, the old adage is those who can do and those who can't teach. And so we decided we wanted to, we originally wanted to do this as a way to prove to prospective clients that we knew what we were talking about. Um, and then it's been so successful beyond our wildest imagination that ultimately we think this is going to be the thing we do full time when we do convert um, to a paid uh, subscription newsletter, which we hope to do soon. Nice, nice. And it's, it's kind of ironic that you used the, uh, the green chicken. I was... Uh... I was driving out of my uh, driveway and, and to, onto the main road and our neighbors had some chickens and they just like oblivious to like what's going on. Like, and then I start, you know, driving up and they just start running for their lives and stuff. And like, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty interesting that you use that. Um, and, and I think that really a, a lot of us can be like chickens. I mean, we're not aware of a lot of the things that are going on, especially the energy crisis, I mean, that's going on in Europe. And I mean, I haven't done enough research to see like if that's coming to America or whatnot, but um, what, what's your take on what's going on there and, and just any updates uh, that, that you may uh, see any trends that you may see that's going on now. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of uh, uh, things going on with Putin and everything. We'll, we'll get into some of that, but what, sure, what's coming sure. up updates you got? Yeah. I'd say, you know, take a step back. One of the, themes of the Doomberg writing, um, we don't always write about energy, but we write about energy a lot, is that um, we're making some pretty serious mistakes in the energy sector. 
And because energy is life, literally, um, when you tinker around with energy, you're tinkering around with life. And when you tinker around with life, the people who pay the highest price are the ones who can least afford it. And we've been ringing the bell for several months now on the upcoming energy crisis. And, and to your point, um, I do believe the energy crisis will eventually reach America, despite the fact that we have an enormous energy bounty. Uh, one of the frustrations and challenges is people with you know, um, unscientific backgrounds are making decisions that have real consequences for real people. And we, one of the things we try to do for our subscribers is to at least teach them the basis of our of our concern um, and highlight a few patterns that they could recognize in their own portfolios and then you know insert that information into their own investment decision-making work process. Um, and maybe that'll help them allocate in a different way. We don't give investment advice and we're not you know licensed financial advisors and we're always very clear to disclose that. Uh, but in, in Europe, you know, with that context, um, Europe really um, is hell-bent on rapidly decarbonizing its energy sector by steadfastly opposing all development of fossil fuels, um, shutting down nuclear power, and then only supporting the development of solar and wind. And we actually think long-term that will be very detrimental to solar and wind because the path function of executing that transition will be very, very difficult for the population. And it's actually unlikely that we won't see serious social uh, and economic unrest in, in Europe. Um, and the, the, the specific manifestation of that blunder was, uh, uh, you, you don't have to look any further than natural gas. Um, Europe allowed itself to head into the winter with um, criminally low storage of natural gas, which made them reliant on Putin um, for a period of time before the US saved the day. Um, uh, an entire flotilla of uh, liquefied natural gas carriers are on the way taking natural gas produced here in America in the shale patch predominantly and bringing that over to Europe to plug the supply gap for them and get them through this winter. Um, they were also very lucky uh, because the winter wasn't as cold as it could have been uh, historically. And so, um, but the price of natural gas in Europe exploded. So just to give your listeners uh, and your viewers some some benchmarks. Um, right now, the price of natural gas in the United States is $4.50 per million BTU. That number in Europe exploded to $60 per million BTU at its peak. And to convert that into a number that everyone can relate to, um, $60 per million BTU natural gas is roughly the equivalent of $350 a barrel oil. And uh, right now in the U.S., oil is $90 a barrel, and the average price at the gas pump is $350 a gallon. And so if you multiply that number by four, you're talking about $12 gas. Um, so that's the kind of energy crisis that Europe exposed itself to. Um, your question around, uh, will it reach here? Well, to the extent that these markets are global and these energy inputs are fungible, um, the entire episode in Europe, which spilled into China, elevates energy prices for, for the world. And it's only a matter of time before um, before we start seeing some pain at the pump, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting just how uh, when these politicians pass uh, policies, um, a lot of times people tend to think like, oh, well, just go turn the, the nuclear reactor back on or just go turn uh, the oil oil pump and just go drill for oil, like just start again, like and it, and it doesn't work that way. Like it, it comes with a lag and then it also uh, takes time to get those things back up and running. And so, yeah, um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's wild. Yeah. And on the top of that, um, we, we wrote a piece um, called 
contortion nation where we, we bemoan the fact that uh, three judges were able to stop the completion of a pipeline that is already 94% built, which uh, forced the US to have to cut a deal with Qatar, the country of Qatar, which runs a um, highly unquestionable society, highly questionable society, sorry. Um, and you know, it just puts us in a bad spot geopolitically and uh, it feels good to say that we're going to affect this energy transition, but you know the laws of physics constrain you, uh, as as well as the the laws of permitting and the laws of bureaucracy, and it takes years and years and years to turn on new infrastructure, um, and there's just not going to be the capital available to do that because if you have uncertainty, you know capital goes where capital is treated well, and uh, right now the global oil investment needed just to maintain current production is something like $500 billion a year. And I think the current budget for 2022 is on the order of 370. And so um, that shortage will manifest itself in reduced supplies. And the price elasticity of demand for energy is huge because energy is life. And so the price elasticity of demand for life is very high. And the ones who couldn't pay it are the rich. And so um, we wrote up pretty strident piece called starvation diet um, where these policies will end up starving tens if not hundreds of millions of people around the world and we just need to know that like are we okay with that um, i'm not okay with that doomberg the team behind doomberg is not okay with that which is why we write about it so passionately but this is real the price has to be paid there's no circumventing it and the decisions as you say uh, aren't so easily reversed yeah um and and on that same note with energy being life like you really opened my eyes. Like I listened to one of your interviews and um, it opened my eyes to like how energy really affects, like especially emerging markets and in countries that aren't fully developed, uh, who don't have electricity um, 24 hours a day, who don't, who are not able to burn electricity 24 hours a day. And so uh, when I think of those things, like we, we tend to pass policies like, yeah, we need, we need to, um, you know, have clean energy. We need to, you know, decarbonize and things like that, which I agree, which I agree to a certain, certain point, but there's still a lot of the world that has not even caught up to where we're at. And so, um, so it's very, it's very, um, you open my eyes with that, just like seeing like, okay, well, a lot of people in the world don't have energy 24 seven like that. Yeah. Um, so we wrote a piece called, um, why are cows sacred? And uh, sort of an interesting title and a funny story, but the reason why cows are sacred is energy is life. And um, most of the energy in the world that sort of comes directly or indirectly from the sun, the vast majority of the energy that hits the earth from the sun is, um, is just sort of dissipated as heat, but a small percentage of it does get um, stored as chemical energy in the form of photosynthesis. So all the plants and trees and grass that you see around you, yeah, but only a small fraction of that uh, is plants that are edible by humans, whereas um, the miracle of a cow is that their stomach can eat virtually any grass, and then they convert that chemical energy that's stored in the grass to milk, which humans can drink, and to which we can then convert into cheese, which we can store. And um, so a cow is, is sacred because a cow is the first solar-powered rechargeable battery that uh, give humans an, a nearly endless source of, of energy that allows humans to flourish. And that's why cows were so respected and uh, became such a big part of so many cultures around the world. Uh, we say this because um, you know, the base of, has, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs are food, water, housing, 
protection from the elements. Um, we have so much energy excess in the in the Western world and in the U.S. Um, regardless of where you sit in the socioeconomic strata, um, you know, being poor in the U.S. is radically better than being uh, almost anywhere else on the planet. And we sometimes forget that, and and we forget that because we have become so detached from the sources of the energy that satisfy our hierarchy of needs that we've forgotten about them and we take them for granted. And one of the things we talk about in that piece is, you know, there's a billion people, plus or minus a couple of hundred million, let's say, for whom the daily struggle for clean water and food and heat to uh, maintain a comfortable thermal zone, you know, around their bodies, that's a daily struggle for them. And sometimes they don't win it. Whereas for you and I, you come home and you turn on the light switch and, and your room is lit and you come home and, and you could change into a t-shirt because the temperature is controlled. Uh, that's not normal. That's a recent phenomenon. And for a billion people, that, that literally is a daily struggle. Now, take that as one statement of fact. What is the carbon footprint of the Super Bowl? I mean, I like football as much as anybody, but if you calculate the carbon footprint of spring training, traveling all over the country on jets, coaches, executives, players, um, all the fans that go into and out of these stadiums, all the food that's consumed, all the beer that's drank, um, all the private jets that go to the actual playing of the Super Bowl. It is an incalculably large waste of energy for the entertainment that's produced. And yet we don't even think about it. And so if you're a person in Asia or Latin America, you know, I, in my executive career, I traveled the world. I, I've been to the slums of Brazil and to the, and to Mumbai at one in the morning when you land in the airport and um, you see the people begging on the streets and, and the conditions under which they live. And if they just had a fraction of the energy excess that you and I have, it would be radical, a radical improvement in their lives. And yet here in the West, we spend this enormous amount of energy on the Super Bowl. Um, and look, I love football. I, I, I really enjoyed the last Super Bowl. I watched most of the playoffs. I, I get it. Um, but that is the world we exist in. Like if an alien came from the outside and observed how we have partitioned our precious energy budget um, in, in this sort of income inequality writ large, it, it's really remarkable. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 amazing. Like just even just thinking about like just the energy that goes into the Super Bowl and, and how much is, is wasted when there's a lot of people without that. Um, so what's going on with like the, the nuclear energy? So like a lot of, a lot of the politicians, they're trying to, uh, you know, f fight, uh, global warming. And I, I don't know if it's just, uh, you know, United States or Western world warming or, or what, or if it's happening like in, in other countries that don't have, um, a lot of access to oil or whatnot, but they're coming off like they're trying to, you know, do something positive for humanity, trying to save the earth and all these different things. But they're obviously neglecting this, this one factor of many people of not having this, this, uh, access to the energy at all, um, or very limited supply. And so when I'm looking at like nuclear, um, I've been in a nuclear trade for a while. I've told my audience about it. Um, and just the thesis behind it. Um, but you know, nuclear seems like a way that, that we can actually have um, a lot more clean energy um, and using that as, as the base and, and kind of just what, what, what are some of your takes on that? And like uh, sure, any, sure. any updates in that arena? 
Yeah, so um, we are very, 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 very strong proponents of nuclear energy. There is no ethical path to decarbonization without a massive build out of our nuclear fleet. Nuclear is the safest and cleanest form of energy of all of the energy sources. This is a, for some bizarre reason, it is a controversial statement among the more radical environmentalists. If you truly think that CO2 emissions are a existential threat to the planet, and you truly care about distributing as much life nurturing energy to as many humans as possible, there is no alternative to nuclear energy. Um, there just isn't. And now we can go through all of the arguments and they've been you know, well-documented in our pieces. Um, one of the big sort of canards against nuclear energy is somehow that we won't, we don't know how to handle the nuclear waste. That's just, when people say that they're either unserious or uneducated. Um, the world needs a lot more nuclear. The one country who is doing it aggressively is China which is good since China makes so many of the things that we need, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but they have something like 150 nuclear reactors in various phases of construction. And uh, we suspect that most of those will get finished. And so uh, the US on the other hand is kind of standing still, um, saving most of the reactors that were scheduled to go off, but it's still very, very difficult to turn on a new reactor. Um, Japan is, is starting to turn back on the reactors that shut down after Fukushima. And then um, Germany is turning off all of its nuclear reactors, which is amazing to me. It's sort of this national kamikaze. Um, and then uh, France just recently announced that they're going to be uh, building out some new reactors. So it's, there's a lot of push-pull. I think the, the momentum is in the pro-nuclear camp as the environmentalists face the constraints of physics and understand that there's only so much decarbonizing they can do without starving a bunch of people. And so this is the point we keep hammering home. What is your alternative for the people that will be robbed of the energy that is currently being produced as we shut down fossil fuels? Yeah, and, and are, are we still experiencing like a uh, supply deficit? I know COVID, uh, they shut down like, I think it was Cigar Lake and um, a, a few other reactors. And, and uh, uh, from what I was reading was that we were about like, I don't know, it's like 52, I think it's 50 million pounds short, and we have some secondary supply coming online and, and all of that. So are we still in a supply shortage? Oh, you, uh, you, with this you're energy? talking about uh, uranium, yeah, to feed those reactors? Um, yeah, so um, there's the, the, there is no such thing as a supply shortage. Um, there's um, supply, demand, and price. And so the price of uranium is elevated versus recent history, but nowhere near where it needs to be to trigger um, the reopening of mines for whom they cannot make a profit at these prices. And so just to benchmark you, I think uh, uranium is trading today at around 40 to $45 a pound. Um, just in the past couple of years, it was trading down as low as in the, in the low 30s. Um, and in order to induce mines to bring on new supply, the industry assumes that they need to be somewhere around 75 to $80 a pound. And so there is access inventory uh, out there and that's being worked out but um when you see massive supply uh, a price spikes that's when you actually have the market telling you that there's not enough supply which is what we saw with natural gas in europe we've not yet seen that with uranium um, so that tells me that there has to be pretty significant amounts of inventory sitting around that needs to get churned through 
Um, and if we do see a, a super spike, you know, like where the price doubles or triples over the period of weeks, then you'll know that um, that we've exhausted supply. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. And then um, I, I just kind of want to transition a little bit. So um, I've heard you talk a lot about um, just how your your views on gold. I, I consider myself a gold bug and just as, as a hedge against uh, um, a geopolitical risk and and just the, the crazy madness just out here. I mean, it, it seems like black swans can just happen at any point <laughs> right now. Yeah. And so gold is just my insurance against that uh, rather than being in uh, fiat or being in, in a dollar. Um, so um, what's kind of your outlook on the gold? And uh, I mean, you don't necessarily have to do a price prediction, but sure. I mean, people love that stuff. But um, <laughs> for me, I, I just I just want to hold it just because I, I know it has value, you know. Yeah. So gold falls into the category of real assets. And it's of the real assets, a pretty special one because it has a 5,000 year history of, of being money. And it is trusted by um, members of various societies around the world as their societies enter into, let's say, a, a collapse spiral or hyperinflation. Um, uh, our philosophy is, is we, we earn money in fiat to sort of live and pay our bills. We save by buying real assets and we invest privately where we can affect the outcome uh, in private businesses. And so in the category of real assets, which represents our savings, gold has a, a healthy allocation, uh, but it's not the only thing that we buy. Um, so other examples of uh, real assets include um, land and collectibles. Um, and for some people, it also includes crypto. Um, but for, uh, for us, gold is a, is a healthy allocation but we don't um, speculate in the price of gold. Gold is a subset of our savings, which, and, and a, you, you would like it if your savings were hedged against inflation and to the extent that land and gold and collectibles tend to do well in inflationary environments. That's why we, we keep our savings in such real assets. And so, but uh, you know, integrated across our net worth, it's never more than a couple of percentage points, maybe 5% of of what we would own either directly in the form of um, physical gold that we can touch or store. And then also there is a, a few investment instruments um, that if you're going to have quote paper gold, um, not all paper gold is created um, the same and, and our preferred investment vehicle for storing some money, i.e. saving in gold is uh, FIS, the, the stock symbol is P-H-Y-S. Uh, that's the Sprott Physical Gold Trust. Um, and they claim, and, and the industry credibly believes that they have one-to-one -one backing, and so it's not levered. And, and, um, and so that's kind of what the gold bugs would say is the safest way to buy paper. Um, it's not an investment recommendation. It's just if, if, if you're looking to allocate some, that, that's the vehicle that we choose. Yeah, definitely. And and for me personally, I have way too much of my percentage like uh, allocated to, to gold and silver. Um, I've dabbled in crypto, uh, got into a little bit of the Bitcoin mining, but um, I mean, I'm, I'm still more, um, I, I have some skepticism on crypto and, and, you know, I do think like the hype around it um, and, and some of the like herd mentalities around it, it's like, okay, do you, do you, some of you guys ever challenge your own views or, or, <laughs> you know, it's like, is it, it's not going to go straight up forever or, you know, there's, there's yeah. so many risks. And so, uh, gold is just my insurance. And so like, uh, for me, I, I, I have trouble like budgeting at times. Like I'll talk to my channel about budgeting, but sometimes I have trouble with it. If I go buy gold, it's harder to liquidate. 
it's harder to, uh, you know, I have to find a seller and all this stuff, you know, yeah. whether you're working with eBay or whatnot, and it just helps me continue to build wealth. And so, yeah, uh, savings, so, yeah. yeah. Savings that are hedged against inflation, so to speak. And, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting point that you say, which is, you know, the old adage is if you want to control your budget only buy things with cash, well, that's of course getting harder to do, but it is true. It's so much easier to take a credit card out and swipe a $70 purchase than it is to take five twenties out of your wallet and only get $30 back. And uh, what you're describing is one step further than that, which is I'm going to take my cash and I'm going to buy gold coins and the bid ask spread on selling a gold coin is pretty wide. So you should only really do it if, if you need the cash. And um, that makes it even harder to spend that money, which is kind of why I started my answer to your original question on gold by placing it in the category of real assets uh, uh, which is how we save our fiat. Uh, we don't like to have a lot of fiat cash sitting in the bank. We like to have enough liquidity so that we don't have to worry about um, needing money in the regular day-to-day -day course of living our lives. But we would be hard-pressed and it would have to be a serious emergency for us to liquidate our savings. So um, you know, if, if I execute this plan well, um, the inheritance to my children will include a lot of gold coins and the collectibles that we have and the land deeds that we can sign over to them. And, and um, that's very, it's very hard to spend 10 acres of land uh, on something frivolous um, because the, the uh, cost to transact is very high. And so that's a great way, a great mindset to sort of force yourself to save some money. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, I mean, I started getting into like the uh, collectible uh, cards like I bought uh, <laughs> I bought a Charizard I bought a rookie LeBron James card and stuff and I'm just like hey some, somebody will pay you know I'm, I'm gonna just let it sit for like 20 years or something see see what my kids can do with it my uh, my advice is uh, watches and so um, the thing about the collectibles market is there is a there's a chance to create some alpha by studying it carefully before you make your purchase you know um, but there's also you could you could get it wrong and so um, you know, if you bought your baseball card collection at the wrong time during the Topps card mania of what it must be almost 30 years ago now, um, you know, you make you, the quality of such decisions is determined by the price you pay, not by the appreciation. And so, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, 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 definitely. And uh, I mean, the watches are like, shh, like I've been looking at the Rolexes. I'm like, man, I, yeah, I love one a, of those. It's the hi highest returning portfolio <laughs> in my, in my, uh, in my accounts, uh, it, it, but even there, you know, the, it's hard to transact, right? So the, the watches that I bought over the years, and I always, again, this is a form of savings for me, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a watch that uh, Rolex recently discontinued that has gone up 450% in the last two years. Um, wow. It's hard to beat. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what, what's your take on collectible cars? Are, are you, are you into those? Uh, one of my partners uh, on the Doomberg team is into collectible cars. Um, it's a little hard because where I live, you know, the weather isn't super amenable to, um, because I live in a, in a place, a part of the U.S. that has four seasons. And, and I think if you're going to be in the collectible car business, you probably need to be living in a place like California where it's sunny all the time and there isn't salt on the roads and, and so on. And so, but there again, um, it can be done. Um, if you study the car market very carefully, you can understand which of the models and, and which trims of those models are, are the right purchase. I personally don't do it because I, I don't know enough about it. And I, I have areas where I do know a lot about like watches where I feel like I have an edge. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. The green, the green chicken be blinking out, y'all. <laughs> want, want y'all to know that. Uh, so yeah, so I, um, I actually own a, a a piece of real estate. I mean, it, it was um, a house that we originally bought, and so now we we just rent it out uh, to a tenant. And so, like those, those are some, definitely some things. Like you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting more into. Uh, and you know, we just, I mean, I just encourage our audience to like just, hey, like get things that store value, actual things that you can physically touch too. Um, and so, uh, leading into crypto, um, yeah. I kind of just I, I listened to a podcast you did about the crypto black swans, um, and I kind of wanted to like get your take on some of the the things that that I actually think could be a black swan for for crypto as well and uh uh, some of those things are like just the the how crypto has to use the the traditional banking system um you know um and and that's like a a huge one because um no one's buying just lamborghinis just going and buying that lambo with just paying in in bitcoin you know uh, i mean someone else may take it but I mean, you usually have to go through the banking system and transact that into into dollars, exchange that into dollars or whatnot. Um, Correct. Another, another thing is that uh, we'll we'll get into the other thing, but like so, being used having to use the traditional banking system, kind of what what's your take on there? What what's the risk there um, or what? Huge risks, huge risks. So we we put a piece out um, yesterday. In fact, it's our highest impact piece ever. I'm not sure if you had a chance to read it yet, but oh, no, um, not yet. It's called um, Just Watch Me, and um, it, it goes into what's going on in Canada and the trucker protests. And, um, you know, regardless of your views on the trucker protests and whether they should be allowed to block parliament and things like that, um, what we're seeing is that the Canadian government has basically instituted martial law. Uh, they declared a, the equivalent of a state of emergency, and the government has the power to freeze all banking accounts, both personal and commercial for anyone they deem to be involved. They don't define what involved is. And um, the government deciding to turn off Daryl's bank account um, is without recourse or judicial review. They've effectively suspended their bill of rights. This is in Canada. This is, you know, the friendly Canadian North. And on top of that, for people that are, you know, because we're pretty skeptical about crypto for this exact reason. Um, they've also begun to identify and freeze wallets. Um, and so, uh, and to confiscate the Bitcoin or the crypto in those wallets is the next step. You can guarantee it. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of people on Twitter and comments to our pieces when we write skeptically about, about cryptocurrencies, um, they live in this world where they think that they can just use their anonymous wallet and go buy things. And like you said, the rails on and the rails off are controlled by people who can turn them on and turn them off at will. And Canada just flipped its switch. And so um, it's a very, very dangerous development. Um, the, the, we cannot allow the normalization of unbanking without recourse because then you're effectively living in a totalitarian state. And we're so much closer to that than people realize um, that it is, uh, it makes you shudder. And Canada is a test run for that. And so I would encourage your listeners to go read uh, Just Watch Me, uh, which we published yesterday. I mean, so it'd be a few days after by the time this recording gets out. Um, but it's it's gone pretty viral for us and a very high impact piece and a very powerful piece. We talk about how um, this all flows from the reaction to 9-11. You know, and every day 
your rights get a little bit less clear, a little bit more trampled on, your privacy is eroded. And at some point you wake up and it's too late and the government can just do what it wants. And uh, we put out a tweet this morning that said, you know, um, if the US government wants to turn off your, you know, access to the financial world, your cold storage of crypto isn't gonna do you much good. Uh, it's not like you can go buy food or gasoline or pay your bills with that today. And they're never gonna let you do that, um, we believe. And so we believe that the proper response to a government encroaching on your rights is not a new currency, it's a new government. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I mean, and that also, I believe, relates to like the CBDCs, the uh, mm -hmm. central bank digital currencies. And That's uh, dystopia, man. Like if that happens, forget about it. Because then they could turn off your life without anybody knowing with the flick of a switch. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a uh, very, very concerning and, and a high risk. Um, and a lot of people have been talking about this for decades, just the banning of cash and yes. and all of that. And so it's it's interesting just to see like, dang, this is happening. Indeed. And so um, I, I do a little study in on um, some of the just changing world order. Um, I recently um, have been reading the fourth turning and, and just kind of putting having some context for a lot of what's going on. And it, it sounds like it's it's like history repeating itself over and over. Um, but it also like it's alarming just how much more power they're able to get, uh, especially with the technology and such. And this is the scary part. You know, I, I used to wonder how somebody like Mussolini came to power and, and I don't anymore. And um, now the scary part is like if Mussolini came to power today, look at the tools he has, you know. Um, it's very, very scary. And, um, you know, what's called Doomberg. So people know what they're getting, I guess. Um, but it, it is, um, it's scary. Uh, we're doing our part, you know, the power of the pen. Um, someday we'll get canceled, I'm sure, if we write the wrong piece. Uh, there used to be a time in the US where um, if something wasn't prohibitively outlawed, you were free to do it. And that's no longer the case anymore. And we've become far less of a free society. Um, far more like the Soviet Union used to be before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's scary because not only do people not object to it, but a surprisingly high number of people actually want it. They're, they, they want this protection from the state somehow. We've lost our independence. We've lost our self, our go-gettedness, our own, you know, the, the desire to go and make something of your life. Um, and we're depending on the state for so much that it sort of dulls people's desire for, for freedom and to, to live their life how they choose. And, and people, I don't blame them per se, because I don't think that they, they like, they just don't know how this has been tried hundreds and hundreds of times in history and it, it never ends well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, and for George Orwell to write 1984, like mm -hmm. in, in that day, it's like, wow, like, like he gets... <laughs> yeah. yeah. And by the way, like your gold coins and my watches aren't going to do as much good if I can't convert that into cash and go buy food. Um, and so this is, you know, it is, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty scary time. And, you know, I, ultimately I'm, I'm optimistic because I, the people won't put up with it. I just wish there was a, uh, I wish there was a, a way that we could avoid the destructive path that we're on before we have to learn these hard lessons, uh, the hard way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and another black swan, um, uh, that I've talked to my audience about is, uh, cybersecurity. 
Um, if there's, uh, I mean, we're seeing a lot, a huge amount of Bitcoin and other altcoins being um, uh, hacked and stolen from these these platforms, just millions and millions of dollars. And and just thinking about if we have a huge cybersecurity event, um, how uh, most of our most of our lives are digital. I mean, our money's digital. Um, yeah. You know, your Bitcoin's digital all these things. And then you have, you know, uh, Klaus Schwab, you know, from the, from the great reset or world economic forum, um, you know, mentioned that, that cybersecurity would make COVID look like a mere inconvenience, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, I, I just think like that's, that's a huge black swan. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, we're, we're sort of mild members of the preparedness community in the sense that, um, I have, plans for you know keeping my household running if if the world sort of stopped operating in the way that we expected to for at least 30 or 45 days my theory is that if it's an emergency that's much longer than that it's probably, probably not going to be a great time to be alive anyway um but most people are radically unprepared for even the slightest disruption let alone a black swan event like a, a you know cybersecurity attack that knocks off the entire electricity grid you know um, we have a plan for that in my home and I've helped as many friends as I can, um, develop similar plans, but yeah, the, the grid is unstable and susceptible to outside attack. And, um, if you lost power, you know, for two weeks, uh, you'd be surprised how few of your neighbors could, um, comfortably persist through that time period as, as short as that might be. Yeah, definitely. And that, and that brings us to our, to our next, you know, kind of section of just like, what can we do to like be more prepared? I mean, uh, you're Doomberg. Uh, hey, I I like doom and gloom, but you know sometimes I'm like, okay, I need a little bit of optimism. But I mean, sure. these, these these are real risks, you know, that that are happening. And and I want to just give the audience um, just uh, a few ways that they can become more self sufficient and prepared for, uh, which I believe is inevitable. Um, I mean, uh, a changing world order that's probably going to be more authoritarian, you know, um, or whatnot. And so, uh, what, what's kind of your take on some ways that you can become more self-sufficient? So, uh, having a detailed understanding of how all the things in your life work that produce the, the health and well-being of you and your family is a good, important step. You'd be surprised how many people don't know how their homes work. Don't really understand what they would have to do if the water supply into their home got shut off. Um, but it, it begins with being educated, having a voice, confidently expressing that voice, generating income above your expenses, managing your expenses so that you can save money, saving your money smartly, investing it wisely, um, not trying to speculate, not trying to chase the next hot thing. Um, for every person that you see who's buying a Lambo from their crypto adventures, there's 15 people that are losing substantial amounts of money. Um, that's just the way the world works. It's the same in the stock market. I'm not picking on crypto in this instance. Um, and so, you know, our philosophy is um, if the things that I enjoy in my life got turned off today, what would I do? And then how much of my time and money and energy do I want to spend on what we would call insurance against those events and just have a plan and work the plan. And so um, with my family, we, we have a plan for if the power goes out, we have a plan for if the heat goes out in the winter, we have a plan for um, if uh, the grocery stores ran out of food because the truckers went on strike, how much food do we have in the house and how many days would that last us? And what would we do? And what are the milestones? And COVID was a bit of a dry run for that, you know, because we kind of forget already, but 
you know, for three weeks, um, my garbage wasn't picked up in my neighborhood. And what do you do with your garbage? And how do you handle it? And how do you keep a, keep up a home with good sanitation when the garbage isn't being collected? Um, these are all things that are simple that we take for granted. Back to our discussion earlier about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, the typical home, if you live in a house, um, has sort of four key inputs and two outputs. It's, it's um, let's just say, natural gas, electricity, um, water, and goods and services like the Amazon delivery truck come into your house and dropping off goods that you click the mouse button and buy. And then the output is, you know, garbage and, and human waste. And if you live in a high-rise apartment in New York and the toilet stops flushing, you're not going to be staying in that apartment for very long. It's measured in days. Um, what's your plan? And most people don't have a plan because every time they turn on the light switch, the lights come on. And um, it's it's scary as much as we try to sort of prepare people, um, most don't because they've never had to worry about it. And so we shall see. I think we're pretty fragile, like you said. And um, so all we can do is is prepare for ourselves, help as many friends and people that we love prepare to be mindful um, and to keep a, a keen eye on the sort of milestones that we would have to see. So for example, like if your kids go to school, what would have to happen in the news for you to get in the car and go pick your kids up and not wait for the bus? Um, that's just one small example of a preparedness plan. Um, because if there's an emergency going on, I want my kids under my roof, you know? Um, and so th th those types of questions, scenario analysis, planning, just recognizing that in a time of emergency, the only person that's going to be looking out for you is you. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. And and you had mentioned on uh, one of the um, podcasts you were on, like, you know, you and your family come first. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, I was like, hey, man, to that man, like, cause yeah. I'm going to take care of my family, like, regardless. Yeah. And and by the way, we're generous people. And um, we had a, a local emergency in our community. And, and at the peak of that emergency, because we had planned for it, we had um, a total of nine people staying in our house. And because we had planned for such emergencies, we had ample food and warmth and drink and company and entertainment for those nine people such that um, while it was still a devastating tragedy to our community, we were able to help uh, shave the edge off of the impact for those families. We had an uh, extra generator to lend out and we were able to you know, save somebody's home um, as part of this together. Um, but they had a home base from which we could operate as a sort of a tribe, you know, um, and we're, we're not um, selfish people. Um, and in fact, uh, it gave me great pleasure to be able to help my friends out in their time of need. And one hopes and trusts that uh, in the unlikely event that I would need them to return the favor, they would. And, and it'd be great if we had a society that was more like that over time and not less like that over time, which I fear is, is where we're evolving to. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 like in that situation, like, like post um, that, that crisis um, that, that happened in your community, um, did you see any transformation and just like, um, you know, some of the people like that in your community that you helped, like where they, that's, they may have gotten. It's fascinating. The first thing I noticed was nobody was wearing masks anymore. It was pretty amazing. Like sort of once to sort of forced you to assess the risk. Um, there was an awful lot of um, hugging and helping your neighbor and realizing that um, yes, COVID was a serious issue. And, um, but this was a, big time serious issue in the community. And literally overnight, I, I didn't see any more math. It was just one of those weird things that stuck with me. Like when, when I went to the community center to drop off some donations, um, 
for people's pets because it, literally these are the things that you don't think about, you don't plan about, and people have a very deep association with their pets. And if you have to evacuate quickly, so we brought, um, since I'm, I'm a prepper, I, I prep for my pets as well. And so we brought some of the excess supply over and inside the community center where all these families were huddling, nobody was wearing a mask. It was just, it's like, we got, we got serious business to do here. Definitely. Know, so. definitely. Definitely. Well, Doomberg, I appreciate you coming on the show and everything. Uh, this, this is a very powerful uh, conversation and, and just some great things that um, the audience is, is going to be able to receive. And I, I learned a lot as well. So I appreciate you coming on. Daryl, anytime. Uh, it's great. I really appreciate the opportunity. And look, uh, let's not make this uh, a one and done. I'm happy to come back on anytime you'll have us. Definitely, definitely. I'll link to the Substack in in the uh, description, and I'll also be sure to put the Twitter handle in the description. So y'all be sure to go over to Substack, sign up uh, for the uh, or subscribe to Doomberg and read some of these articles. These articles are powerful. These articles are very insightful to what is happening around us. Um, you know, and ironically, let's let's not just be a clueless chicken. Let's actually That's be right. alert. I mean, this chicken on the screen is pretty alert, if if you ask me. You know. <laughs> Appreciate it, Daryl. That's Doomberg.substack.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Doomberg T at the letter T is in Thomas to the end of Doomberg. Um, and uh, again, really great time. Looking forward to doing it again. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right.